word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and Mark 12, 13 to 17. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. <clears throat> and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God, and the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we are in a sermon series called Origins. Um, origin stories are ultimately stories about purpose and identity. This means without the book of Genesis, it is impossible for us as human beings to know who we are and what we are for. That's what the book of, in fact, just the first chapter of Genesis keys us into identity and purpose, who we are and what we are for. Now, last week, while Pastor Rob was filling the pulpit for me, um, he talked about our purpose, talked about the purpose of humanity is to exercise dominion. In fact, I would say it'd be fruitful dominion. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. We see this in Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 28. Fill the earth, subdue it, exercise dominion over it, see to its flourishing. And as we talked about purpose last week, today I wanna talk about identity, who you are. Now, there may not be a more puzzling question that can be asked than, who are you? Who are you? Now, the first layer of the question is really simple, right? You give your name, right? I'm Sam. Who are you? I'm Sam. Nice to meet you. Great. But then if somebody were to keep pressing and say, yeah, that's your name, but who are you? Like, who are you at the core? Like, what makes you, you? That's where things get a little bit more puzzling, where you really have to start to think about it. Like, yeah, maybe send you on to an existential crisis, or you're like, yeah, that's a great question. Who am I? Now, what our tendency is to typically to, to point to, if we're asked this question, to point to our vocation, to, to point to the work that we do, because there is, in fact, a, a significant correlation between purpose and identity. We see this in Genesis 1. But if you were to define yourself, you say your identity is wrapped up in what you do, whether you're a lawyer or a nurse or an accountant or a stay-at-home mom, if you were to make that thing your central identity, the thing at your heart of hearts that makes you the core of you, it wouldn't be sufficient because 
What happens if you were to stop doing those things? What happens when your kids grow up and they move out of the house? What happens if you have a career change and it moves you from, from building houses to now doing taxes or vice versa? Those things that you do say something about you. They say something about your qualities. But those things, the thing you do, your vocation, does not compose you fully. Because if you stop doing that thing, you would still be you, right? Like I, I, could, I could stop being a pastor, but I would still be Sam. Which brings us down to the question once again, who are you? Who are you down in the heart of hearts at your core? Who are you? And people spend a lifetime, an entire lifetime, searching for the answer to this question. And sometimes people think they figured out the answer only to, you know, maybe in a couple years realize, oh, that wasn't it. And they get launched into this identity crisis trying to refigure out. It's a new decade, new identity. Trying to recreate, search, and find out this identity. Now, my goal this morning is both simple and lofty. My goal this morning is to help you answer that question definitively today. That you would walk out of here this morning knowing for certain this is who I am. And to get to the answer to that question, we're, we're not going to look inside ourselves. We're not going to peer into our hearts. We're not going to, to look to our feelings. What we're going to do is look to God's word. We're going to open up our ears to what God has to say to his people through these passages. And the first place that I want to take you to, to sort of show you the correlation between our two texts, is take you first to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 17. This, this should be a little bit familiar. This is one of your Feast to Flourish Bible reading um, segments for this week. And this is really quite a fascinating passage. And there's a lot that could be said here. And I would love to kind of nerd out with you. But I, I want to give you the big picture. What's going on here in this situation where you have tax collectors coming up to Jesus and asking him a question about taxes. Now, the first question when we come to this text is why? Why are the religious leaders coming to Jesus with this question about paying Caesar taxes? Now, it's not because Jesus is some sort of tax whiz. He's not some like covert accountant that they're just going to for some quick financial advice. There is a motive behind this question. The religious leaders we've seen, if you, keep, if, you, if you go back even a couple chapters, the religious leaders are out to get Jesus. They've, they've been fed up with him. They're trying to set him up so that Caesar, um, actually, here's what they're going, they're trying to get a juicy soundbite out of Jesus. We're trying to get Jesus to say something that will make him sound like an insurrectionist, that he is trying to set himself up against Caesar, right, who's the, the ruling leader of the day, so that Caesar would hear about this and Caesar would do the religious leader's bidding and crush Jesus and end his life and his legacy. 
Right? That, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to set Jesus up as an insurrectionist so that Caesar would kill Jesus for treason to make the Pharisees happy. So this is why they come. So, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the, the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. They're buttering him up here. We know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Jesus, knowing their, their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And, and they brought one. Now, Jesus says to them, they, they're, they're asking this question about taxes. He said, let me see the coin. Let me, let me see the coin that you would pay Caesar for your taxes. So he sees their motive first and then asks to see the coin. Now, the denarius is, is a one day's wage. Right? A, a hardworking individual would go to work and they could expect to walk home that day with a denarius. And Jesus asked to see one of these coins and he asked them whose inscription is on it or whose, whose image is on it. Verse, verse 15, 16, he says, and, and they brought one, he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this. And they said to him, Caesar's. Now on this coin, I wish I would have brought a slide to show you. This coin, it had, like, like our coins, have president's emblems on it. Caesar's was on this one. And Jesus takes that coin in his hand and he says something that leaves the Pharisees marveling. Take a look at this in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, why why would this cause marveling? Why would this response, it seems pretty straightforward, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's, give to God's what's God's. Why is this cause of marveling? And it's really twofold. One, Jesus had outwitted the Pharisees and the Herodians. Jesus caught on to their plan and gave them an answer that wouldn't fit into their narrative, into their, their little, uh, their, um, their scheming. So Jesus shows us he's, he's quite bright but the other part of this is that this is a super profound statement to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Now, at face value, this passage looks like it's a, a passage about taxes, which that is true. But really, it goes deeper than this. It's, it's not a passage that's primarily about what belongs to Caesar or what's due to Caesar. This is ultimately a passage about what belongs to God. What does God have claim on? Ta Caesar might have claim on some of your money. But what does God have claim on? Now, it's interesting here, as Jesus asked to bring a coin, He comes to the conclusion that if this coin that has Caesar's image on it, if this coin, because it has Caesar's image on it, belongs to Caesar, what does that then mean for men and women who are created in the image of God? See, this is the connection between Mark 12 and Genesis chapter 1, where we're told here, if you, if you jump back to one of the first pages of your Bible... 
You see this. You see the likeness, this imprint of God on mankind. It says in verse 1 of Genesis, uh, or chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just as that Caesar belongs, or just as the coin belongs to Caesar, so then does all humanity belong to God. Now, this is God's creational claim on all of his works. God creates and claims what he creates as his. You see this in Psalm 24 where it says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It keeps going. He founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the rivers. Because God has created, he then gets to claim ownership of that which he creates. The same thing is evident in Psalm 100, verse 3. It says, um, wrong page. It says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. See, this is how Mark 12 ties into this whole discussion about identity. See, this is the thing that you need to know. In order to know who you are, you must first know whose you are. In fact, I would say that you cannot know who you are unless you know whose you are. This is the foundation of identity. Knowing whose you are, this concept of belonging provides a framework for identity. To try to build an identity without knowing whose you are is like trying to nail jello to a wall. It's not, it's not gonna stick. It doesn't have the framework. It doesn't have the structure to maintain. Belonging provides identity. I have this memory, um, I have this memory as a kid um, with my grandpa, my grandpa Ozzy, every, my, he was a regular, um, every, almost every day he would go and have coffee and play cards with some of his retired farming buddies. Um, and I would occasionally get to go along with him. I thought it was kind of cool. I was probably young, you know, maybe mid, late elementary age. Get to go along with my grandpa and kind of see what the men do, which is, by the way, that, that's a good thing for young men to see what real men do. But I get to go along and uh, sit with him and watch and observe. Um, I, I, I didn't drink coffee yet at that point, And I don't know if I would, because it typically was like burnt Folgers coffee. And they'd sit around a card table and play cards with reti a retired deck of cards that my grandpa would bring home from, from the casino that he worked at. And I remember sitting there one day, kind of on the outside, watching the, the older men do what they do. And one of these gruff retired farmers, retired farmers looked at me and asked a strange question. He looked at me and he goes, whose are you? Right, in that sort of grisly, straightforward farmer kind of way. He goes, whose are you? And I was like, that, huh? <laughs> but I realized he was asking my connection. Like, 
first of all, how did you, kid, end up in this place? <laughs> like, well, you're in the wrong spot. But he's asking my connection of how I got to where I was. And I said, well, I guess, I guess I'm Aussies. Like, we share the same last name and all. I guess that, makes, that make, means I belong to him. He's my grandpa. And he says, yeah, I should have known. You're kind of ugly like him, too. I never forgot that. <laughs> Insult hurt. I, I had this realization, and looking back on that interaction, was the realization of belonging. I, I looked like my grandpa. There were similarities, likeness was there. I shared the same name. This idea of belonging was something that, that I, I came to grips with and, and have come to grips with throughout my life. Because all humans are made in the image of God, because we are imprinted with his likeness, we belong to him. This is the creational norm. Our being as humans lies in God's being. Like who you are is who you are because God exists. Our identity then is received from God. It is derived from God. If we were to embrace this reality that we belong to God, our identity isn't God, and embrace that reality with all of its implications, we would live a glorious life. There would be no identity crisis because we know whose we are. We would be secure, we'd be confident, we'd be satisfied with who I am. There's no need to go reinvent. There's no need to kind of change who I am in order to adapt and to be more acceptable. I already belong. Now, this would have been what human existence would have been like had not Adam and Eve gone on a misguided, serpent-led, fruit-eating attempt at self-actualization. If Genesis 3 was not part of the equation, that glorious life would be all ours. Security, belonging, comfort, joy, sense of peace, confidence. But Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 3, they make an attempt to create an identity for themselves. See, that's what Genesis 3 really is. When we look at Genesis chapter 3, the fall, the scenario where the serpent comes into the garden and tempts Eve to eat the fruit, and then Eve gets Adam to eat the fruit. This isn't just a moral failure, though it is a moral failure because God had told them, don't do this. This is the one thing that you cannot do. It's a moral failure, but it is a moral failure that goes beyond that. At its core, it is an attempt to be and exist detached from God. That's, that's part of the, the temptation of the serpent. You eat this and you will, you will be like, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Like, you won't need him. God doesn't need nobody. You can, you can be your own. 
The serpent in that moment may well have said to Adam and Eve, eat this and you can be free. Eat this and you can be your own. God doesn't have to own you. You can be what you want. If you were born a man and you wanna be a woman, you can do that. You can be who you want. You can be free. Throw off the restrictions. There are no rules. You set the course. You decide who you want to be. Now, when they're tempted, there's something about that that's alluring. There's something that that they're drawn to. Otherwise, they would not have eaten it. There was something appealing about that temptation. And they bit. Now, the same dehumanizing murmurs of the serpent are obviously reverberating in our society today. In fact, this is one of the, one of the defining lies of modern society is that you are your own. The primary lie, perhaps, is that you are your own. You belong to nobody but yourself. You set, you set the agenda. You determine purpose. You, you throw off the limits and choose what you want to do. There are no definitions. There are no rules. There are no codes. There is no created order. You choose. You choose, you determine, then you manifest, then you actualize. In other words, you do you. The serpent pitches this as a brave new world of opportunity. You can be free, unrestrained. God can't hold you back anymore. But what they didn't realize, what Adam and Eve could not see is the burden that comes with self-ownership. Now, to help us, I, I want to um, refer to a commencement address from one of our time's best philosophers and poets, Miss um, Taylor Swift. She said this at a commencement address at the uh, New York University. She stands up in front of um, bright-eyed college graduates. She's getting ready to send them out in the world. And she says this, I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who you want to be and when. You are now uh, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. She says this, I have some good news for you. It's totally up to you. It's totally up for you. You get to decide. You get to decide who, what you want to be. But then she says this, which I think is really insightful. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. The allure of freedom to create your own self comes with a unavoidable burden And she realizes this. She rightly realized the act of self-invention is terrifying. It is a heavy load to carry. Why is that? Why is it terrifying? 
Well, Dr. Alan Noble in his book called You Are Not Your Own plays this out for us. He says, the reason why it's so terrifying is because you are now responsible for every aspect of existing. For you to be your own means that you are totally responsible. There's nobody else stepping in to help you out. It's totally up to you. Look at these duties, he says. If you are your own, the most fundamental truth about your existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, of defining my identity, of interpreting meaningful events, of choosing my values, and electing where I belong. Once I'm liberated from all the social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. See, to be your own means that there is an incredible weight on you. If you really want to cut ties from God and say, you know, I appreciate that, but I think I can construct an identity that's more suitable for me. Thank you. If you do that, there's an incredible weight on you because it means there's no receiving. There is a givenness to your identity. You were born in the image of God. Your identity was attached to that thing that was given. There is a givenness about your life. But if you are your own, there's no receiving. Now you have a burden to perform. Whether you're gonna perform through your work or social media or whatever it is to create some kind of identity and push it out into the world, now that burden is upon you. If you are your own, that means there's no automatic belonging. If you are your own, the the burden lies on you to not only posture yourself, to make yourself suitable for a, a certain kind of group of people, but then you are constantly charged with asserting yourself and proving that you are worthy of existing in that space. If you are your own, There's no automatic belonging. And if you're your own, there is no resting. If you are your own, the task goes on perpetually for you to invent and maintain and keep reinventing what you must do in order to have an identity. You're constantly being burdened with proving who you are. Now, this is the the baggage of the lie, of the temptation that the serpent lays out. He promises this kind of good life, a life of, of liberation, but really what it delivers is a life of exhaustion and slavery. But not only that, it's a life of insecurity. If I belong to myself, in fact, just think of this. If if our whole society says, no, I belong to myself. Everybody says, I belong to myself. That means that no one owes me anything. That means I know I owe no one anything. 
Relationships are all voluntary. There is no covenant. There is no commitment. Relationships exist as long as it works for me or as long as it works for them. And so it creates this instability in relationships. Now, relationships are really helpful in uh, fostering identity because, oh man, because we cannot just say, well, I'm this and that becomes reality. I'm reliant upon some sort of external validation to affirm what I put out into the world. And so if I don't have any kind of community to affirm those things, then it's also nebulous, it's, it's shifty. My identity is not secure. Now, do you see the cruel bait and switch that Satan performed here of being your own? Because it means that you are not free. You don't experience the liberation that he promises, but instead you're, you're enslaved. You're not flourishing. You're fighting to survive. The bottom line is this. To be your own, to belong to yourself, is an inhumane existence. Listen, and I say this, this might sound harsh, but I say this with the love of Christ, that anyone who says they belong to themselves are living a subhuman life. And our job as heralds of good news are to bring people into the understanding that they are not their own. They've been created in the image of God. Because forsaking our creational identity leads to futility. And, And there are people at different places, people that we look out in the society and we see, well, they're way off the deep end with this but it's something that we ourselves are doing too. Maybe not in this huge way of saying I'm my own, but by using my job to validate myself, but by looking to my success as a marker of my identity, my relationships, my achievements, whatever those things are that you go to and point to and say, this is what makes me me. In that moment, we are forsaking the core of who you are. Now, this is where the good news goes in. See, owning yourself is bad. It does not go well. But Christ has come to save us from our sins and our folly, from from when we pushed away, where we severed the ties with God so that we could be our own. Jesus comes back. He says, I'm going to restore you back to your spot in my father's house. Now, how does he do this? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 say, You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, Jesus comes, he redeems and restores us back to the creational order and he makes a claim on us that we are his. In this, in the redemptive order, not only were you created for God, by God, for God, but you are also redeemed for God. 
that Jesus came to save us from our attempts at self-creation and offer us once again the comfort of belonging to God. To belong to Jesus means to find your existence in his grace and mercy. It means that you, to be in Jesus means that there's no way to make sense of you without Christ and the gospel. Because it means you're not defined by what you do or don't do. You're not defined by how deserving or undeserving you are. What you are defined by is the finished work of Christ where he paid for your sins. The relationships uh, with you and God that are severed, Jesus restores them. He reconciles us to God. And it's in this gospel identity where we are truly freed to live. That's where you find real freedom. It's a knowing that you are a child of God. 1 John 3. Look at the love of God that makes us his children. And when we understand our identity, when we understand our being, then comes our doing. It's being gives way to doing. Because I'm a child of God, I live like a child of God. And as I live and exist in our God-given identity, our gospel identity, we are free to flourish. There is a joy in that that cannot be found anywhere else. There's stability that can come from nothing you can do for yourself. And there's comfort. There's comfort. It's interesting. The profession that we had here, I'm, I'm bringing it to a close here. The first question, the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks man, what is your only comfort? What is your only comfort in life and death? Now, why, why would a catechism start with the concept of comfort? Well, it's because in the fallen world, we are in unstable times, disorienting times. And the thing that we need most in our lives, in our hearts, is stability. Life after the fall is disorienting, it's confusing. We need a solid rock on which to stand. And in the gospel, we are offered clarity and comfort, security and stability. Listen, I'm gonna read this whole thing here of, of uh, question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Well, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the power of the devil. See, the, in trying to create your own identity, you are under the power of the devil. Jesus came to liberate the captives. We are set free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way, or he also keeps me in such a way that without the will of my father, my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. So we see Jesus first making the way that I can re-belong to God, 
right? Being redeemed, ransomed by his blood. Then we see God's kind of care and provision for us as his children. And then there's the Holy Spirit who offers assurance that I am who God says I am, that I am who the gospel says I am. He, he also uh, gives me assurance. He assures me of eternal life and then makes, my, makes me heart, heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, that is the good news. That is the good news that we are not our own. We've got nothing to lose when we say, I belong to God. We've got nothing to lose and everything to gain when we believe this, understand it, and live out of this. And then the question two goes on, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. The ways that I've tried to create my own identity apart from God. The ways that I've rebelled against him, cut off my relationship with him. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. How Jesus has accomplished it. He's, he's renamed me, given us a new identity. And third, out of that reality of not belonging to yourself, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. See, to answer the question that we started with, who are you? To know who you are is to know whose you are. You belong to God that you are God's child, you've been adopted. You're the prodigal who's been brought home by the redeeming work of Jesus. He's redeemed me from my sins. He's restored my identity. And now I am perfectly known, perfectly loved, perfectly kept. There's no need to self-invent or construct something that I am not. I get to receive the grace from God. And part of the grace of belonging to God is belonging to God's people. That when we belong to God, we belong to one another. Now, this gospel identity is liberating in the truest sense of the word. It doesn't mean that there are not restrictions, but only the right restrictions. To, to live an, aligned to my identity of Christ means that there are certain things that I will do and I will not do but they are things that lead to my flourishing, lead to my comfort, lead to my deepest joy. And so as we turn from sin, as we receive our identity that Christ has given us, we can boldly, confidently, joyfully live as if we are not our own, but belong in body and soul and life and death to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not our own. That, that as we stand here ready to receive the elements, we see, we see the price that was paid for our redemption. In order to bring us back from our folly, our rebellion, our self-centered ways, you sent your son to earth to take upon all of our sins on the cross. His body was broken, his blood shed, and it's by his wounds we are healed. It's by his laying down of his life that we find our true life in Christ. Help us to live out of that. Give us strength, give us joy, and give us comfort in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 